thing we have to fear is fear itself, fear itself. From the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University, this is Digital Campus, a bi-weekly discussion of how digital media and technology are affecting learning, teaching, and scholarship at colleges, universities, libraries, and museums. This is Digital Campus, episode 113, You Can't Trust Everything on the Web. Well, welcome everybody back to Digital Campus. This is episode number 113. It's hard for us to believe that it's been going on this long, but it has. It's early April here in Virginia. The sun is not shining. The April showers are falling, but that's okay. We're not distressed that there is no snow. Um, so we've got our full lineup, or almost full lineup, of uh, podcast regulars. I'll start from the snow belt. Uh, Dan Cohen. Dan, how are you doing today? I am doing okay. The snow is mostly melted up here in Boston. That's pretty awesome, because there was a lot of that snow this year, I heard. <laughs> there was, yes. <laughs> it is mostly gone, but there's still areas. They cannot start a Little League or soccer in our town because... It's still there's it's too Just too snowy. On the yes. fields, right. Right. Well, and of course Dan can be found at dancohen.org. Um, moving south of lovely Fairfax, Virginia, where I'm standing at the moment, we go to. Amanda, are you in Charlottesville? I am in Charlottesville at the moment. All right, and this is Amanda French from amandafrench.org, and uh, so let's see. No snow in Charlottesville, right, Amanda? No, no. In fact, things are blooming. We have violets, and we have forsythia, and we have lots and lots of cherry trees. That's oh, great. rub it in. Rub it in. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I was, uh, although I'm in Virginia, um, we were up in the mountains, Shenandoah National Park, over the weekend, and there's still some snow up in the mountains, but probably by now it's gone. So I think we're done with snow in Virginia. Dan, maybe you will be too. Um, also joining us is Stephen Robertson from the Center for History and New Media. Stephen, are you over in the Center for History and New Media? I am indeed. I am in, in the corner office. Um, and, and it's daffodils, which I am noticing around the campus here. Okay. Not that I could really rattle off the impressive list of flowers that Amanda did, even if I had seen them. And for those of you who haven't figured it out by now, I'm Mills Kelly, also from George Mason Center for History and New Media and the Department of History and Art History. And so welcome everyone to the podcast. We have some some interesting stories to think about today, one of which I have to say, it just kind of made me laugh because I spend a lot of time, those of you who have read my blog or written, read anything I've ever written, I spend a lot of time talking about how you teach students to be critical consumers of historical information that they might find on this thing we call the internet. And there's a story in the national news, but it was especially more local news here in Washington, but I think it probably echoed out a little bit about how, well, some people at the United States Postal Service might have benefited from taking one of my classes uh, because they've just come out with a new um, forever stamp uh, honoring the, you know, Maya Angelou, one of the great writers in American history. And unfortunately, the quotation on the stamp, which is attributed many times to Maya Angelou, is not 
original to Maya Angelou. It's original to a poet still with us living in Connecticut. Amanda, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name all of a sudden. Joan Walsh England. Joan Walsh England, and um, and who is fam- who has a book of poetry from 1967 in which this line on the forever stamp appears, and then it's only later in the later 1960s that Maya Angelou begins using it. And um, you know, I have to say, I, I was really so happy about the story in the paper um, about uh, where the reporter tracked. Uh, the poet down and and asked her. She's 89 years old now, and asked her, you know, what do you think? You know, my Angela's getting credit for your what you wrote. And her response was so gracious. She said, "I love Maya Angelou. I'm so happy that she's getting a stamp." And and so that was great. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Amanda, you had another take on this. Well, yeah. So uh, it's you know the same take as anyone, which is that it's you know how can this possibly happen that they can misattribute a quote. Uh, on a U.S. postal stamp, for he- you know, for heaven's sakes. But I happen to be, you know, rather familiar with Joan Walsh England because uh, my grandmother, uh, who recently passed away, was a doll maker and doll collector and artist, and uh, she was a big fan of Joan Walsh England, who, you know, was in addition to they called her a children's book author, and apparently she did, apparently she did do some poetry, but she was really well known as an artist, and so like many children's books book authors she would you know illustrate them as well as write them and she had a whole line of dolls and so on and was really really popular in the 70s so I was very familiar with her work from early on but I think but there is a sort of a technological angle on this which I find to be really interesting which is that I suspect and have talked with many friends of mine particularly uh, ones who teach and ones who are on Facebook all the time I suspect that in this age of social media we are seeing this get worse and worse, this misattribute, you know, misattribution of quotations because they, it's so easy to decontextualize them and they get shared and shared and reshared. And not only that, not only do you constantly get these um, things spreading around on Facebook and Twitter and so on, but it's very easy for somebody to create what is in essence what looks like an authoritative source. So President Obama misquoted this in a speech, apparently a couple years ago, and you know then everybody uses that as the source, right? And it seems to be authoritative, but you know you got to go find the original source. So I find it interesting. I don't know whether people have done studies on this. I expect they have. Um, whether this kind of thing has gotten worse in the digital age, um, and uh, you know I'm I'm always harkening back to Ryan Cordell's you know terrific digital humanities work where he's writing about viral texts in the 19th century and you know that this this phenomenon is not new um, people used to do it in newspapers and newspapers would reprint one another particularly before we had they we had the stringent copyright uh, laws that that we do today but um, so people used to do this kind of thing all the time share quotations and just you know they would lose attribution or get mis- misattributed all the time but I do I do I do think it's probably worse in the digital age and then what kills me too is that um, you know, you, we still have a, an age of um, hatred for Wikipedia sometimes. And, I mean, Wikipedia's standards for this kind of thing are just so much higher than anywhere else on the Internet. I just don't understand why people are continually citing Wikipedia as, you know, oh, unreliable information, when in fact they do quite a good job of policing uh, information on Wikipedia. And nowhere else on the Internet is even trying to do that. And I can give you a very specific example of that um, in a very brief, shameless promo. You turn to page 50 on my, in my most recent book, and there's a picture of a button with Martin Luther King Jr.'s face on it. 
And a famous quotation of his, everything that is done in the world is done by hope. This is cited over and over and over. Um, and I have a button. I bought a copy of that button. So since I have the button, it must have, he must have said it. But um, in fact, that's almost entirely correct. It was said not by Martin Luther King Jr., but by Martin Luther himself, the theologian. <laughs> and, and in fact, it's you go to Wikipedia, to the wiki quotes in, through Wikipedia, and they have the correct source. So you can fact check it that way, but but you know I think you you uh, you may be right. And when the when the postal service was queried by the Washington Post, like how did you get this wrong? They said, well, we found it on a whole bunch of websites. So we, if you find it on a whole bunch of websites, it must be must be the right quotation. So U.S. Postal Service, you know, here in the Washington Post, they have a um, a worst week in Washington every Sunday. Like who had the worst week in Washington? From the digital campus perspective, the U.S. Postal Service gets the worst week in Washington. So, uh, so that's that's our first story that we all had to kind of chuckle about a little bit. Um, Mills, I just I, I'll point out that one of uh, Roy's first uh, Roy Rosenzweig's essays on oh yeah that's right on the internet yeah actually one of his first essays actually had a couple of these um, instances where um, I think it was about the canals um, in New from York. Right. From Van Buren, exactly. Yeah, um, I'll have to pull it up. We can put it in the show notes. But uh, you know, he made this point even 15 years ago that um, these things were bound to happen more in the internet age because things do go viral and they get um, just literally lifted. I mean, cut and pasted many times over the internet. But he made the point that it's both um, easier to do and uh, to create these false, uh, falsely attributed statements um, or just outright lies, um, but of course it's also easier to find them out, um, which is exactly what what happened in this case as well. So um, the, the, he pointed out the kind of parallel nature of, of this, uh, this uh, phenomenon, which is a very internet-like phenomenon. Well, and interestingly, the first person to point out the mistake was um, someone who had throughout his, throughout his life had been, he was a copy editor at the Post, I think, and he throughout his life had been writing down quotations from works that he had read, he'd been writing them in notebooks, um, things that he just really liked. And, the commonplace book. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. And, and so he saw the stamp and he thought, you know, I've seen that before. And he started flipping back through many years of these books, these notebooks he'd been keeping, and he found the quotation and he went back to this 1967 book of poetry and there it was. So, so you know, analog scholarship is what actually uncovered it. But um, So that's that's one story we were tracking. The other... Another is that the Gates Foundation has just come out with a new survey about um, high-tech teaching methods and, and faculty adoption of them. Uh, Stephen, have you taken a look at this one? Yeah, I have, though probably not as close a look as I should have. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's, a, it's slightly the headline that we're working off for high-tech is slightly misleading because it includes a range of decidedly low-tech things like incorporating group projects into it. Um, but I guess the striking thing about the table is that they they were asking people to identify whether they were familiar with particular innovations and techniques whether they and then were versus whether they then trialed them or adopted them and and the big gap in the numbers here is between people's familiarity with a whole range of technologically related um, teaching tools and techniques and 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 vastly lower amounts of actual trial or adoption um, beyond that um, and and again I'm I'm not quite sure how how you would read that. I think it. I think arguably it's fairly 
easy to become familiar with some of the things I've identified in this survey, like hybrid classes, like fully online classes, like the use of flipped classrooms, um, the use of social media in classes. There's a lot of kind of at least headlines to skim about that that might make people aware of them. Um, you know, so the, the, the unfamiliar numbers across the border are very low. And then, the, you know, what it is that exactly moves people from familiarity to being willing to give things a go, I think, is is a potentially tricky kind of question. I mean, some of these things require resources. Um, our good friend Clickers um, are in there, um, and that's not something that you can try or adopt unless you actually have the setup to do it. Um, and, and I would suspect that that's probably the least likely um, resource to be available to a lot of people in, in their classrooms. Um, versus, you know, I mean, the most adopted in there is the least technological, which is incorporating group projects, which there are multiple imperatives to beyond the technology. But I mean, in my, in my teaching, I've actually moved a lot of my technology-based assignments from individual to group projects, because I think it's increasingly um, clear that, that when they're working with technology, the students do particularly work more effectively in groups and I had them doing that in class today doing some mapping and you know there's definitely when they're grappling with the technology being together in groups is particularly effective just as it was with varieties of other things um, but I don't know the assumption that this represents some kind of technological re resistance by teachers I think is a little little harder to to read into the numbers but I think that there is you know nonetheless there is something striking about the gap between what people are aware of being discussed as teaching and what they're actually able or perhaps willing to try um, in their own classrooms. And I do think there's something significant in the fact that they wanted to study this by bundling together the clearly technological with the not so technological. Experiential learning, service learning is in there as well as group projects alongside the technological and the numbers are uh, kind of overwhelmingly um, the same. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not really sure that the headline is what this is about. I think that maybe, you know, you could read this as as a sign that people are widely aware of the options that they've got for bringing technology into their classrooms and, and changing their pedagogy, and that either through lack of availability or lack of willingness, much less of that is actually being transferred in, into classrooms. Um, though, you know, if you take social media as one of those things that, you know, the numbers for social media suggest about half the people, more than half the people were aware, and about 20% have adopted it. And given the scepticism of, of a lot of historians, for example, to social media use and teaching, I would take 20% as a fairly encouraging kind of number that people are beginning to find, that those kinds of things are beginning to find their way into classrooms, even if it's not at the level of the number of people who are at least aware of them. You know, more people have adopted them than have trialled them and presumably not adopted them, 20% to 12%. So in most cases, trial leads to adoption. And I think I would, you know, see that as... as as a sign, in fact, of a more positive attitude to technology. But I still wonder whether this is as much about what is available to people as it is about what they feel motivated, inspired to use. Yeah, I, I you know, if you turn, if you actually look at the at the Gates report uh, and sort of drill down into the report a little bit, one of the one of the tables, uh, and we'll we'll link the report up to the show notes. But one of the one of the tables it talks about people's uh, plans going forward, and um, you know I think it's really significant that the um, 
there's a substantial lag at in in the use of sort of not just technologically mediated pedagogical techniques, but also just sort of some of these other kinds of non-lecture model pedagogical techniques. Um, and there's a substantial lag behind all other types of institutions at publicly funded doctoral, primarily doctoral institutions. So sort of the big research heavy institutions, that's just not, it's not really happening and it's not really their plan, to the faculty's plan to make those kinds of changes either. Um, which speaks to kind of a, you know, a separation between what happens at these uh, these large publicly funded, primarily doctoral institutions, and and the rest of higher education, um, and then the other is uh, that only you know just around fifteen percent of faculty say that they plan in the in the coming year or two to substantially increase their their use of these kinds of techniques, and and that's something that um, I think that's a really interesting number because there's so much hype. In higher ed and sort of ed tech hype, and you know Audrey Waters, of course, is really the expert on this this level of hype. But there's so much hype about technology and how it's transforming higher education. And, and if only 13% of faculty or 15% of faculty say that they plan to increase what they're doing with technology, there's a big disconnect between the hype and the reality. Yeah, that's a great a great point, Mills. And I also think um, your point about the different kinds of institutions. I think um, people are constantly forgetting um, that you know there are, it's a, a really different world out there in the majority of higher ed institutions that are doing um, basic instruction rather than you know research one universities. And um, I, I uh, we were talking before the show a little bit about this, but uh, I did a study what is now ten years ago, which is hard to believe, but. Uh, looking at just um, uh, introductory American history classes. And um, you know, even 10 years ago, there was a lot of talk about uh, new innovative techniques. Obviously, the web had already been around for over a decade um, in 2005. And um, you know, th there's just an inherent conservatism that I discovered doing that study, and particularly at the institutions where the majority of the instruction was being done. Uh, what you saw was that um, most instructors defaulted to textbook teaching. Um, the main book that was assigned um, in most of those courses uh, were textbooks, and um, implementing some of the the um, you know what ends up being kind of high touch, right? The flipped classroom stuff, for instance, um, where the lectures are, are happening outside the classroom, videotaped or whatever, and then you're in in the classroom and there's more discussion. It sounds great, but at a lot of places what you see is that there just isn't a lot of variation. And again, there's a kind of small C conservative aspect to the professoriate where they, they really just want to get the job done um, in an expedient fashion. And, um, you know, we, could, we can complain about that, but uh, um, there wasn't a lot of innovative forms of teaching, group projects, um, use of primary sources, very, very few, um, very few additions of primary source sets or things like that. So, um, so I, I think this is probably indicative of a larger, you know, overall, um, uh, I guess, I don't know if we want to call it methodology, but uh, certainly a sort of slant uh, to, to instruction in most colleges. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing that's, um, that's really interesting in, this, in the larger report is something we've talked on, and Tom's talked about this a lot over the years on the podcast, is the sort of faculty frustration with the level of 
bureaucracy that they have to deal with or the kinds of administrative support that they get or that they want to do one thing and the IT people on campus want to do another thing and that and so that they're often talking past each other and this report shows that there's really no sign of, of an abatement of that um, tension on, on campus between the IT people and the, sort of the IT structure on campus and the instructional structure on campus. So I think we still have a you know a good way to go on this. The, um, the And this report just points that out yet again. <laughs> I guess so in some ways it's not really new information, but it's just confirming what we know. It, which Can I say one thing yeah, else? Sure. So I, I think um, to live up to the hype, what I recommend from having lived through this winter in Boston is that a lot of the colleges here ended up doing a bunch of the things on the list uh, here from the Gates uh, <laughs> thing. So using Skype in the classroom, it, it turned out uh, that there were a whole lot of people who started teaching with Skype because they simply could not get to the classroom for so many weeks. So, um, so basically they, what you're saying is that global climate change <laughs> is going to induce educational innovation. That is pretty much it, Amanda. Yes, you, you've struck on their overall. Um, so yeah, you gotta, if you're buying the stock, you got to buy long here on the global warming front. <laughs> All right, um, which leads us to then a story that was in Inside Higher Ed, this, I guess just not quite a week ago, about the MOOC landscape. Just when you thought, just when you thought that MOOCs were gone, we brought them. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah, dun, dun, dun. You know, MOOCs are back. They're like zombies. You know, they've been reanimated yet again. And of course, they didn't actually ever die completely, um, but. As this this inside higher ed story points out, you know, 2012 was dubbed by the New York Times as the year of the MOOC, and boy, that really faded in a hurry. But um, the I don't know what 2013 was, but it sure wasn't the year of the MOOC Part Two. Um, the so, the, but it's a very interesting um, story about um, what happened, what's happened with MOOCs, and where the landscape of instruction and you know, where people have gravitated to. And it's MIT and Harvard have published a, a really nice study of. Um, you know who's taking the classes? How far did they make it to the classes, et cetera, et cetera? So it's it's well worth it. if you're interested in this. It's well worth a look. But the um, the thing, in some ways, I think is even um, more interesting is in, than that study is one published by John Hansen and Justin Reich um, at Harvard uh, just recently. And again, it's Audrey Waters who gets the credit for. Uh, reminding me about this story, but um, so they did a study, as, probably as part of this larger study, they uh, they looked at who is actually engaged with MOOCs because one of the arguments for MOOCs was that they were going to be you know the great democratizer, they were going to provide a free MIT and Harvard education to the world, and there's this new book by um, uh, Kevin Carey called The End of College, which um, well read the review in Inside Higher Ed, but uh, in, in which he furthers this argument about the university of everywhere and, and that you know, MOOCs are going to transform the global learning landscape. Well, this, this study by uh, Hansen and Reich at Harvard points out that registrants for Harvard X courses, MOOC courses, have a household income that is 0.45 standard deviations above the national average. In other words, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot of money we're talking about there. Right. So, and so who takes the the great democratizer, right? Who takes these courses? Pros, very prosperous people. And and so uh, so, you know, the I am going to remain a skeptic, but uh, but I'm going to remain a skeptic for a whole another reason. If any of you guys looked at um, the the website Udemy? Mm. 
U D E M Y. It sounds familiar, is this but I different can't than U Da City. Yeah, it's definitely different than U Da City. Uh, <laughs> I've looked at it, but I've forgotten what it is. It's right? So, but what, what it's you know, it's you can kind of poke around in there and, and find some interesting stuff. It's basically, I know some things, and so I'm going to make a course to teach you those things. Never mind who I am. I just I'm going to do that. So, like, I'm a real estate agent, and I know how to um, deal with home inspectors. In, in the closing process of a real estate deal. So I'm going to give you the, the short course on how to deal with home inspectors if you're trying to close a deal as a real estate agent. And, and you're going to pay me five bucks to watch my, my lecture about this. And, um, or I know how to, I know, I actually know how to install Windows 8 so that it doesn't crash your computer. And I'm going to show you how to do that. And you're going to pay me $7 to watch that. Um, or, and, and these courses, um, you, it's a course on just about anything there, whatever people want to do. And they could be, you know, I'm going to teach you Western Civ and do that for free because you probably won't pay me for it. But, um, so it's all, it's, it's, it is in the same way, it strikes, strikes me that this, and there are a few others out there who do the same kind of thing, that it's sort of the iTunes version, that's sort of what iTunes did to the record album things like Udemy may be doing to the course. Because higher education is predicated on the idea that students learn in courses. And those courses have one, two, three, five, seven credits attached to them. And you need 120 of those credits to have a bachelor's degree or more if you're in engineering so or nursing. So you have, you have a course. Well, maybe you don't need a course to know things. And, and MOOCs are still courses. So it could be that the chunking of knowledge through something like Udemy breaks up the whole MOOC idea as well. I don't know. Mm. There, there, there are possibilities out there because I can imagine students coming to us at some point, you know, a year from now, five years from now, and saying, why do I have to take a course in that? I know it. Yeah, well, I, isn't, isn't that the same idea as badges? And, um, and even, like, course modules. I think there's a lot of – there are many attempts to kind of unbundle – Mm -hmm. Particularly skills and and kind of uh, you know learning units and things from the course and and I remember a study you know I don't know a year or two ago that was they did a big I think governmental investigation into the credit hour you know the the Department of Ed and they were like no the credit hour doesn't really assess learning no one has any better idea at the moment right. you know there was a sense that it's not very good but you know trying to set up a whole new system is going to be very difficult. So, well, I mean, you, you yeah, know all this. I was in a, I was in a meeting with um, our director of career services the other day and, and um, talking about badging. And, um, and she says the problem is that employers are as uninterested in badges as they could possibly be. I have no doubt. Yeah. So, so colleges are very interested in creating badging for their students but the students then go out into the employment market, and the employers say, "Yeah, I don't want to talk about that. Show me your transcript. What were your grades? And, you know, and, yeah. and so you're, you majored in electrical engineering. Okay, so what your GPA was? Did you take this class? Can you code? The badges are irrelevant in, to employers in general. Uh, not 100 percent, but generally irrelevant. So um, for all their hype, they're not really getting the traction either. But um, so anyway, don't forget, MOOCs, they're still here. It's kind of kind of interesting to think about the chunking too, because I feel like one of the experimentation modes that um, never really went anywhere in universities is to 
actually even break down some of the credit hours. Um, you know, have a course that's one credit hour, um, practicums that are one credit hour rather than three or four. Um, some places used to have, I think most of them are gone, the like January course, which would just be a one, one month course, which I thought was kind of an interesting idea. And it's just the, the semester and the, or the quarter and the course is just, again, it's a, a cons- very conservative way of going about things that we're just, we're so used to that even, um, Mills, as you point out, like moving that to the MOOC, all we could think about was the course, you know, with, okay, so you need to record 26 lectures for the 13 weeks. And, um, uh, it, it's, it is a very, um, just the inertia behind it is, is quite strange. Well, and what strikes me about Udemy though, is it's about providing a framework for all kinds of people to offer all kinds of courses, which is, again, it's a slightly different spin on the MOOC, which used to be, you know, I mean, you know, the, the study that Mills has just been talking about is about Harvard and MIT's MOOCs, which are about, you know, at the opposite extreme of a vision of, of what what kind of teacher would have credibility in this environment to Udemy, which is almost, I mean, give or take the the cost, it's almost a skill sharing kind of model with, you know, with far less kind of sense that it's going to lead to a credential as opposed to I need to know how to do or just want to know how to do something and rather than going kind of looking for people to do it in some other environment, you know, you go looking for people to deliver it to you online in, in an Udemy model um, as, you know, kind of the, I don't know, the, the eBay of online learning. Um, everybody can get into the ga- game of teaching and I think that that's a... I mean, I don't know if there's, I think there's traction for that or not. Um, you know, they seem to be, you know, want to do corporate training in particular, and, and that makes perfect sense to me as, as kind of one kind of business model. But if if there if would be real traction in that, this, that would be a way to exchange a much more diverse sense of skills, and it would take it completely out of the classroom, credit hour, you know, college kind of environment at all and make it a, a more free-flowing kind of exchange you know, the academy of you or whatever it's supposed to be but i mean I, yeah, again i'm not entirely sure i think it makes sense but it certainly seems to be a, a very different sense of of what is at stake than a than an academic mooc um and and all of those kinds of baggage that that brings with it well and we and we do this all the time on our campuses because students come to our campuses as new students and we have foreign language requirements, and if they believe that they have the level of foreign language competency that is required by our institution, they take a test, and 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 if they score a certain level, then they are exempted from their foreign language requirement. And so, why shouldn't a student in history? You know, one of the things we expect is that a, is that a history student should be able to um, analyze primary sources and you know a variety of different kinds of primary sources and so if they if they could show up on our campus and say okay i know how to do that we should be able to test that's a skill as opposed to some broader set of knowledge that's a skill that we teach in historical methods and if a student said i know that and i'll give me a test and they pass the test at a level that we're satisfied with then they don't have to take historical methods Hmm. so i mean that's it i mean that's almost back to bad badging but yeah but I just wonder. If- well, it's interesting because I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to think of some things that can't be tested. And honestly, I'm not, this may be terrible for a humanities person to say, but I'm not sure that I know of anything that can't be tested at all. 
Um, like even if it's some, you know, some squishy liberal arts skill like critical thinking or writing or so on, you, you still can test those. It's, it's, you know, maybe not in a uh, multiple choice test, but you can test those and people do. But I, I guess what I'm, what models like, like Udemy and to some extent MOOCs raise for me is not only, um, it's one thing if, if you can just test everybody for their skills and you move into a world in which that's the case, um, then there's sort of no problem. Um, but with in 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 a world in the world we live in where people want shortcuts to you know be assured that somebody knows something without having to go through an onerous testing and retesting uh, regime, what becomes important is the credentialing of the institution or teacher who has taught you something. And that's why, I mean, I think Udemy is kind of interesting having looked at it again, because you, I, I'm sure that at some point, even if they don't now, they will have some kind of method for um, credentialing the people who are offering these courses. Because otherwise there's nothing, even if it's just sort of peer review, like other people say, oh yeah, this course it gets five stars, and other people say, no, this course gets one star or whatever, because otherwise, how is it different from anything else on the internet? Because the thing that always weirded me out a little bit about MOOCs was, I was like, well, but the internet is already such a great resource for learning from one another in this very informal way, and it, the MOOCs always seem to me to be this weird um, position, you know, occupy this weird space between formal learning, which is in-person and experiential and done by a credentialed instructor attached to a credentialed institution and informal learning which is done you know asynchronously peer-to-peer -peer, you know and I'm, I'm in favor of both of those things but the MOOCs seem to be like sort of the worst of both worlds for me where it was sort of asynchronous but not really yeah. sort of credentialed but not really you know and um, yeah I was like well pick one right so so we'll see we know but we know for sure MOOCs We'll be back. Now, uh, speaking of things that, that will be back, Dan, we're coming back to you from our last podcast. Have you purchased your Apple Watch? <laughs> See, Melz, you don't realize I've been talking to you from my Apple Watch this entire podcast. That is so perfect. Isn't it great? And actually, it's totally out of battery, so I have to hang up right now because the half hour of being on. No, I'm just, just kidding. I have no idea. You can't podcast from an Apple Watch. That's crazy. It's for glances and health um, and other things. I don't know. We're, we're actually recording on uh, April, what is it, 8th today? And uh, today the all the Apple Watch reviews came out um, because I don't spend my day reading Apple Watch reviews. I have not had a chance to look through them much other than the fact that I clicked on a couple in Twitter, and they were each about 10,000 words, which seems like a few too many words to spend uh, on a new technology. Yeah, but uh, um, it, yeah, it'll be, I'm, I'm totally curious as to whether this is something that will take off. I, I did see someone um, mention, I think it was Jason um, Kotke, the uh, longtime uh, blogger, um, who made the great point, uh, we were talking about, you know, will this liberate us from our phone? Um, maybe it's a way to kind of get back some of our attention from that uh, 
black rectangle that we've been looking at for the past uh, seven or eight years. And uh, he, he made this great point that there's been like no technology that we've added where we don't end up totally abusing it for these kinds of contact uh, methods. So, um, you know, the, the, the phone only added things to look at along with the computer and the tablet and uh, probably the watch, once it gets uh, even better battery life, we'll just be staring at it in front of our face all day. And I think, I think he may be on to something there. Squinting, squinting. As squinting, as, right. Well, no, no, it's, it's going to be touching us and telling us everything by, you know, various different kinds of, you know, wearable interactions. I mean, I read the New York Times Apple Watch review, which was it's a very kind of interesting piece of writing. I think the biggest trouble it seems to face based on that review is it is in no way intuitive or easy to use in the way that I think people expect Apple products to be. Um, and so I think it, it, it's not a novice user device and I can't quite, you know, that's not the expectation that I think people have buying Apple these days. Um, so, but yes, yeah, so supposedly we're not going to look at it. It's going to touch us and, and we're going to know by its touch what is going on. I do think that piece of it is going to be catnip for your average uh, 18-year-old. I think especially if your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend also has a watch and you can send little lovey-dovey taps to them. Um, I I actually think that that may be a killer app right there. Yeah, I'm less certain about the the last part of the review, which talked about the fact that the New York Times is already producing one-sentence stories for delivery over the Apple right. Watch. Um, <laughs> which yeah, is, you know, Twitter is going to be long form at some point. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I joked on Twitter about that, the New York Times announcement that they're coming up with these short-form uh, headlines for the Apple Watch by pointing everyone to the classic uh, headline from The Onion, uh, from uh, 1941 and Pearl Harbor and the entry of uh, the United States into the Second World War, where the, their entire headline was just WA. It was just W-A and then a, and then a hyphen, and it said, headline continued on page two. <laughs> so, R. That's really a joke about font size. <laughs> it's a good font size joke as well, but uh, it, it is going to be hard. Boy, I mean, can you imagine what kind of cheating is going to go on in the classroom with Apple Watches? Well, one sentence worth of cheating. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Bite so, and our, our our last piece of news today is Amanda. You've just been elected to the DadCamp Council. I hear. Is that true? Yes, it is true. Uh, it would have been a sin, a shame, and a scandal if I had not been. So uh, I'm glad to see that the Zap Camp community has stepped up to the plate. So yes, uh, I, I won't spend too long on this, but I just want to mention that um, that Camp, the Humanities and Technology Camp, is I think doing uh, quite well uh, being a self-sustaining community. I set up a whole election process last year, so we're having elections every year. And, you know, not great voter turnout, but nevertheless, uh, if you do want to vote, you, you, you can log in through that camp account and do so next year. And uh, just, just one other little shout out. Um, we moved the That Camp website to Reclaim Hosting, um, uh, founded by, you know, friends of uh, That Camp and friends of the Center for History and New Media, uh, Jim Groom, among others. And I'll tell you what, it's been great. It's been great. Reclaim Hosting is awesome. Check it out. They have, they do a lot of great, uh, if you're looking for hosting, they have special deals for nonprofit projects. They have a lot of experience with massive WordPress sites like that camp. Um, so, so that camp is doing well. 
and I'm thrilled to be a part of it for another year. That's great. That's great. Two, I, I, I use I Reclaim, I use Reclaim with my students now. They all have to, to have their own domain through Reclaim. It's just like one of the books they have to buy. Now they buy their own domain. Yeah. And well, I do the same just thing. It should have been in our Harvard EdTech IT survey. It's actually domains of your own would be maybe is the awareness factor we don't have. But Reclaim makes that, I think, possible. We've given them a shout out before for exactly that teaching stuff. And I think it, it remains something it would be great to see more teachers taking advantage of. Well, you've, uh, we've, we've reached the end of our topics for today, but one of the things we love on Digital Campus is when the folks who are out there listening, when you contact us and suggest other topics you might want to see us bat around here on the podcast, so please be sure and take advantage of that opportunity and let us know what you want to hear more about, and we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Dan, Stephen, Amanda, thanks very much, and we'll talk to you all soon. Please visit us online at digitalcampus.tv, where you can join in the discussion and let us know about stories and issues you would like us to cover on future episodes. Mike O'Malley wrote our theme music. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Thank you.